This is WORT in Madison, Wisconsin, broadcasting at 89.9 FM and streaming at wortfm.org. Welcome to this edition of the Perpetual Notion Machine. I'm your host, Patrick Seibel. In Wisconsin's early days as a state, a vision to awaken a scientific spirit and foster creative activity was formalized in the year 1870 when the Wisconsin Academy of Sciences, Arts, and Letters was chartered by the state legislature. Over a century and a half later, the Wisconsin Academy supports endeavors across a wide range of science and art, such as the State Poet Laureate, the James Watrous Gallery, the Climate and Energy Initiative, and the recent Climate Fast Forward event in October. Joining us tonight is Erica Monroe Kane, the Executive Director of the Wisconsin Academy of Sciences, Arts, and Letters. Originally from Missouri, Monroe Kane has served on many boards and committees here in Madison, including the Forward Theater Company, Community Justice Incorporated, the Foundation for Madison Public Schools, and she is on the project team for the Center for Black Excellence and Culture. Welcome, Erica. Thank you so much, Patrick. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Uh, there's there's uh, such a broad spectrum here can you, of uh, science and culture. Can you tell us what brought you here to the Academy? You know, it was really interesting because I had been a member of the Academy and really engaged with Academy programming, and I found out about the previous executive director's departure and retirement by reading the Academy magazine, which is Wisconsin People and Ideas. And because of my high regard for the Academy, I took the, the step forward and was happily uh, accepted as executive director of the Wisconsin Academy. It's a real pr- pleasure and privilege for me to be associated with such an incredible organization with rich history and really a dynamic and broad mission. So there's much to d- dig into and for me to be excited about. The magazine is incredible. I did look at the uh, the, most, the 150th anniversary issue. Uh, it's amazing how, how you could grab onto all the different parts mm-hmm. of this. I, I'm not sure exactly how you do that. Uh, but can, <laughs> can you tell us about the history of this? It's, it's a wonderful story. Absolutely. So back in the early days of Wisconsin being a state, uh, when the University of Wisconsin was first being established, the Wisconsin Academy of Sciences, Arts, and Letters was also established. And as you mentioned, that was in 1870. And the people that were involved in establishing UW-Madison were also really involved in the establishment of the academy. And the academy has this broad mission and is really an embodiment of the Wisconsin idea which is shared both by UW-Madison University System as well as uh, the Academy. And it's one of those uh, really central concepts of how knowledge and thinking and creation can benefit people outside of the university system and across the state. And so the individuals that... Uh, convened and created the Academy, had that same broad mission for knowledge, scientific uh, in particular, but also arts and letters, to really be shared in a way that would benefit the state. And this has been 
done in various ways over the past 150 plus years at the academy. But I will say that there are some really interesting through lines, uh, the exploration of how to protect the natural world, something that has been foundational to the academy. Um, certainly, as you mentioned, a very big part of what we continue to do, as we've done with the Climate and Energy Initiative and the recent Climate Fast Forward Conference, but also the recognition of the value of arts and letters as well and the publications that the Academy has been producing since uh, its inception that really seek to share information and knowledge with people across the state in a way that will better their own individual lives and the state more broadly. You mentioned the, the Wisconsin idea. Now, isn't that more like about uh, uh, just over 100 years old versus 150 years old for, for the Academy? Well, it's interesting because the, uh, the Wisconsin idea the, uh, is credited to Charles Van Hise, and that was something that was a shared concern. It was really in the zeitgeist at that time, and it is foundational to the academy in the same way that it is to the university. So it was a moment in time where that uh, idea was really a shared and forceful one, and what the Academy was able to do uh, or set its mission to do is to offer those connections across disciplines uh, in a way that is intentional with the Academy and uh, really something that the Academy has long seen power in, whereas at the university, um, information might have been more siloed than the academy was designed to be. Uh, okay, but that, it, given that it predates for 50 years, is it is the uh, the Wisconsin idea specific to the university uh, to to propagate or share all uh, make everybody a beneficiary of the activities at the university? But the academy is even broader than that. Are you, uh, is there a connection with the university or? Is there, uh, is, is, uh, how does that relation work? Mm-hmm. So the, the academy is not part of the university. It was always an independent organization, but it was created by some of the same individuals who were foundational at the university. And so it was set up to be an independent organization that would share information around the state uh, in the pillars of the sciences, arts, and letters. And it is that same Wisconsin idea concept. Um, initially, the academy was actually housed in the state capitol. And the idea being that the individuals who were uh, leading academic uh, research and thinking would be fellows of the academy, and that information and knowledge would be made available to policymakers, for example, at the capitol. So you can think about it as not a part of the university, but it was uh, essentially set up initially in a way that would amplify some of the great work being done at the university, uh, both to policymakers in the state capital, but uh, across the state more broadly. And when you, you talk about the political link, I mean, that's, that's very interesting that this was actually originally housed within the capital. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking about the the breadth of uh, uh, science 
and uh, arts and natural resources and how this is all, uh, it was under the capital and the, the length of time and, and what we have, I mean, today we have a very politically um, uh, polarized environment. So mm-hmm. how, how it, on earth did this survive so long? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, I think one thing that the Academy has been able to do is really strike a delicate balance of wanting to improve life in the state in a way that is nonpartisan, when sometimes you would think that people from uh, different places on the political spectrum wouldn't have common ground about what improving life may look may look like. Uh, but the reality is that there's a lot of shared values across the state, uh, across many of the boundaries, uh, whether they be political, urban versus rural versus suburban, northern Wisconsin versus southern Wisconsin across generational differences and racial and ethnic differences. There is quite a bit of commonality and uh, respect for the natural world and regard for that in Wisconsin is something um, that has been true across the, st- the state for many people for as long as the state has been um, in existence. And really prior to that with uh, the indigenous pe- people and the native nations. So there, there is plenty of room for common ground. Uh, but I think that it is difficult when you have really a sense of polarizing um, political parties and polarized priorities. But we saw even with most recently the Climate Fast Forward Conference, people were really willing and interested and excited to come together and collaborate across those boundaries to make a plan to mitigate the impact of climate change. And it's that position that has uh, been held by the Academy for as long as the Academy has been around. And uh, there have been uh, board members and executive directors from different places on the political spectrum and we look to have our board of be diverse in many regards, including uh, political affiliation, so that we really are able to hear and understand how to proceed with the mission in a way that is nonpartisan and can engage people from their own different backgrounds and perspectives around the state. That uh, you must be doing an incredible job because uh, after 150 years, this isn't the first time we've had a polarized environment. Right. Here. Right. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. The what struck me, I I did um, look in on the climate fast forward. It was right over here at Monona Terrace, and there were a number of things that you touched on that really, but one that really struck me was the variety of people. I thought this was uh, not just participants, but I mean, these are participants, not just attendees at a conference, and mm-hmm. how engaged they were, and how you had indigenous people, uh, minority people, uh, different ages, gender, uh, people from all over the state. Uh, it was, uh, I, I'm not sure, that there must be some formula that you have to get that kind of involvement <laughs> um, that others could learn from. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you think about the Academy's history, I, um, there's a few points in the past that uh, really jumped out for me. And I'll just read a quote to you here, Patrick. Um, there's uh, in February 1870, the early publication the Academy had called Transactions, there was a quote from John Wesley Hoyt on whether there should be female members in the Academy. And this is the quote. 
The science and letters have neither country, color, nor sex. The straitjacket of superstition and bigotry no longer cramps and cripples investigation in any department of knowledge. So that's from the foundation in 1870. And I can't claim that the Academy hasn't had uh, bias, racial, gender, ethnic bias in its long history, but it, it has been set up with the idea that we can all come together uh, under the umbrella of knowledge and, and experience in these three pillars. And when we were planning for the conference, we knew that we had some relationships to build. We knew that we had um, value that we needed to provide, and we really needed to listen. I think that those are really essential in engaging any part of the population in the state. And when we came into planning for that conference, we, uh, we had some progress to make. We hadn't had as much diverse engagement at the previous 2019 conference, and we uh, were very intentional about that work. So some of the, uh, the outcome that you mentioned uh, in terms of diversity at the conference had to do with shared leadership going into the conference. So wanting to make sure that the communities that are on the front lines of uh, climate change who are disproportionately impacted by climate change were around the table in designing the conference and uh, in, and really with shared leadership in how the conference programming would proceed and uh, how to really amplify the voices of those who hadn't been at the table. And given the fact that the Academy does have this long history of collaboration with uh, leading researchers and uh, thinkers at the university with other nonprofit organizations working in environmental uh, and climate change spaces, as well as with policymakers, we wanted to build a bigger table. And it's not about who doesn't come to the conference. It's about how can we bridge those gaps, those relationship gaps, and some of the power dynamics that have been in the state for a long time and in the country for a long time. So that whether it's uh, tribal nations or climate justice activists or farmers or industry representatives, that those are people that feel uh, they have a stake in this, that they have a voice in this, and that uh, their perspectives will be respected. And a lot of that has, as I said, to do really with being intentional about how you listen and engage authentically and with really just sharing the decision-making uh, so that the conference itself can be one that is reflective of populations around the state. And then that was really essential for us, of course, because the conference, as you said, was highly participatory. And so I say that because people were coming together not to sit and listen and learn. Some of that happened, of course, but to get around the table and say, what can we do to actually change the impact of climate change in Wisconsin in our lifetime now, immediately, and in the long term? And if we don't have representation from people around the state, then the plan won't really engage those uh, populations or their voices, and it, it won't be as realistic. So 
for us to be able to create a realistic plan, we need to understand uh, the different perspectives for people around the state and really, I think, create an environment where people can come together. And that was the goal of Climate Fast Forward, and I'm glad to hear that you uh, felt that we met that goal because um, that was definitely the feedback we, we had from the participants. Uh, there was a lot of energy at the conference and a lot of momentum created that we're excited to continue. One of the things that uh, I was really impressed with, too, is uh, the tribal nations that were represented and, and mm-hmm. um, some of the most important and leading work in transitioning from fossil fuels is um, they, they really lead in a lot of the um, sustainability and, um, mm-hmm. and energy. And I've seen this in, uh, I learned about this uh, actually from doing the perpetual notion machine in, in the areas of fo- uh, sustainable forestry. Can you say more about how you got the indigenous peoples involved? Absolutely. So the, the work that the Academy has been doing in the climate and energy area has been engaged with uh, tribal nations for some time, and we have a few other uh, programs that we uh, have on a regular basis. We have a lunchtime um, series of talks uh, where people can come together and learn about what's happening around the state regarding climate and energy, and we've had a local government series, uh, event. So there's been a number of touch points and opportunities to convene and learn from one another in the climate and energy uh, sphere. And as you mentioned, there's the Tribal Climate Adaptation Menu, which was developed by a diverse group of collaborators representing tribal, academic, and intertribal um, governments. And this has been a great way for others to learn from what's happening with the tribes. And I think that really if you think about uh, the long arc of environmental work, it, it hasn't included learning from the indigenous peoples and tribal nations. It has uh, really not regarded their traditional knowledge um, and that's something we are very intentional, intentional about not wanting to perpetuate. So in addition to inviting people to come and present on behalf of uh, presenting tribal information, we also were really thoughtful about how we engaged with the tribes in a respectful manner. And uh, we were able to... Um, secure a grant from the Wisconsin Humanities Council to support some additional work to engage tribes. And so the, the conference itself, we had, um, we had uh, tribes doing uh, food uh, sovereignty demonstrations. We had a artist in residence and a poet in residence, both of whom are uh, indigenous people and had uh, tribal affiliation. We had uh, the former president, former Ho-Chunk president, Wilfred Cleveland, open and close the conference. And we were able to have a track just specifically designated for uh, tribal knowledge and indigenous um, traditional practices. And we were able to support participants coming to the conference by offering some scholarships as a result of both our own priorities and some resources such as that grant that we were able to secure that helped us do that. So, you know, it's really 
by design and with respect. And uh, I, I can't say that everything we've done has been perfect, but um, we're, we're really trying to do better and we're trying to learn. And we were very honored by the engagement and participation that we had with the conference. Uh, it was very good to see some of the uh, now your your art your uh, sciences, arts, and letters, and and some of the arts came through here too. With uh, mm-hmm. uh, at uh, you sent some pictures. I'll I'll make sure that I use one of them in the posting here um, when we post the show online for for people that like to use podcasts and such. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the art that we? This is a science show, but let's talk about the art side. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the Academy is really based around the idea of intersectionality, and we know that people are inspired and motivated and connect with sciences, arts, and letters in, in various forms. It is, it's, it's rare that you have someone that is only interested in one of those three pillars. And when you think about particularly something that can be so overwhelming and and can make people feel so uh, like their actions could be so futile, such as combating climate change, it's really important to connect in a way that brings them together, makes them feel that there's hope, acknowledges uh, the problem, but really also underscores that there is something that can be done, that there is hope, that there is a way for people to feel about this that isn't just fatalistic. And having fatalism as regards climate change in particular is really going to be uh, the death knell. We know that there's a lot that needs to be done on a global scale, but that certainly doesn't mean that that nothing can be done on a local scale or a statewide scale. And so one of the most uh, powerful moments, I think, in the conference was the closing poem. So we had a uh, artist in, or a poet in residence that was Alexandra Delcourt, and she created a poem for the conference that she read at the beginning. And then throughout the course of the conference, she interacted with people, uh, went into various sessions, and then wrote a poem that day that was the closing poem, and she read that poem. And the nearly 400 people that were in attendance really leapt to their feet in a standing ovation when she concluded that poem. And it was really just beautiful and powerful to see how in her own poetry she had moved to a place of optimism and hope uh, that reflected her experience that day and the energy and experience of others that were participating. And I think that that really showcases how even when you're drilling down all day on thinking about the science behind um, climate mitigation strategies and what is going to have the greatest impact and thinking about what we have to do and the sciences that have led to those conclusions and the information that we have to digest, It is through the moment of, in this case, poetry, I think that made people feel the most unified and the most hopeful and the most uh, inspired throughout the course of that day. And I think that's something that people really carry with them. And 
know, we know that in many different art fields, uh, there's exploration of scientific themes. There's certainly a lot of exploration of nature and environment and, uh, and, and certainly the changing environment and climate change that we see in visual arts and written arts. Um, but I think it's, it's something that really, uh, can touch people in a way and bring them into the, the themes and the information in science, uh, and can, and can amplify really what science is presenting uh, and help us feel connected to it in a way that's just different. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's wonderful to, to, to how inspiring that is to individuals. To, mm. um, I mean, the people have to act on an individual basis, but to roll that up into a meaningful group direction or, or policy. And mm. uh, is, does the Academy still look to, uh, I mean, you're, you're sparking a lot of interest in activism. Are there a lot of drives to change policy? Yes, absolutely. So right now what we're doing is we're taking uh, the consensus that was built in the conference around what are the, and, and it's really important, what are the actionable strategies? What, are the, what is the work that we can get done? It may be that there are some things that you're like, this, this would have a huge impact, but if it's not something that we can really put into practice in the state, then it's not going to help us immediately. It might be useful information to have. It might even be something to work toward. But with the conference, we really wanted to look at what can we do practically together. And so we are taking that and we'll be creating or in the process of creating a plan that will come out of it. We will um, have a public release of that plan and we'll have a public event to talk about the plan. And then there'll be a number of actions that we will do at the Academy uh, to advance some of those strategies around the state. But what was really special and I think essential about the way that we're uh, coming into this work is that it isn't as though we, the academy has a conference and then afterward the academy does all the work. What we're looking uh, to create and, and what we've been proceeding with even going into the uh, conference work is what can you do? What can your organization do? What can your community do? What can your industry do? Uh, what is what are actions that you can personally take, uh, or that your organization can take, or industry, or whomever you represent? What are the things you can have responsibility over? Uh, and it is that shared collective action that is really going to have the greatest impact. So the plan will reflect that and. Um, in fact, everyone at the conference uh, filled out a postcard about what they will, what action they will take personally, and then we'll mail those postcards to them. They all turn the postcards in, and we'll mail those postcards to them uh, to check in on the actions that they can, uh, committed to take. And so, when we roll the plan out, the plan will already have individuals and organizations that uh, will be engaged in the strategies and understanding the value of those strategies and ready to advance those strategies. Uh, for the people who are not in, involved in that or people trying to catch up or have interest, um, mm. is there, do you have advice uh, where they can go or what they could do to? Um... Absolutely. 
I mean, that's one thing that's great about the Academy is that we really, um, we're here for the state and we're here for the state wherever you live, whoever you are, uh, we, we want to connect with you. And the uh, Academy has many doors in and ways to participate. So I would say first, you know, go to the Academy website, take a look. We would love to have you as a member, uh, of course, as a nonprofit organization. We really do uh, rely on individual contributions and membership. But I would say on the site, you'll also be able to sign up for updates because when we uh, look at how we're going to roll the plan out, hopefully people will become aware of that through opportunities like this to find out about it in the media. But they can really be on the front, uh, at the front row in terms of getting these updates if they sign up for the email updates. And then they could find out about the plan. They find out ways to get engaged with the plan. Um, and maybe they want to sit in on lunchtime conversations about uh, what's happening around the state. Often those are ones where we showcase uh, promising strategies or success stories around the state. They may want to come to an exhibition that is uh, a visual arts exhibition at the James Watrous Gallery um, that explores some of these themes. There's often a lot of overlap between the Academy themes. And then, of course, you know, if, um, if they become a member, they'll also be able to get the Wisconsin People and Ideas magazine, and that's a great way to stay in touch with not just what the Academy is doing, but people and ideas across the state. We really look to amplify those individuals and those stories and those thinkers and those creators in ways that are meaningful uh, and valuable for people across the state. And that kind of just speaks to the civil discourse that the Academy has long been able to uh, create, and those are some of the ways that we're doing that. It's, it's really been a, a pleasure to speak today. Thank you. We've been speaking with Thank Erica you. Monroe Kane of the Wisconsin Academy of Sciences, Arts, and Letters. Thanks to WRT's News Director, Sholly Pittman, for airing the show. I'm Patrick Seibel. Thank you for listening. Up next is Radio Literature. Have a great night. <laughs>